Any of you guys have a turkey hangover? I'm serious. Sunday school was so quiet this morning, I thought, man, too much turkey or something. So I had pumpkin pie with whipped cream for breakfast this morning. Right? It was delish. What a great way to start. Hey, yeah, so hopefully our thinking caps are on, eyes are open. If they're not, I'll throw something at you later. Um, One of the things that I appreciate that God does for us in the scriptures is uh, he tells us things he's going to do, things he's up to, things that are coming around that it would be good for us to know before they occur. So sometimes he warns us, right? Sometimes he foretells things that are going to happen in the future, people, places, things, events. And that's all for our benefit if we take note of it. You know, you think back in Genesis 2 when God told Adam, he warned him, he said, hey, if you eat from this tree, this is what's going to happen. You're going to die. He warned him, right? And they, they didn't listen. They didn't take heed. You get to Genesis 3, and God says to Eve, hey, by the way, one of your children, I'm going to use him to crush Satan, the one that led you guys into sin and death and rebellion. He's going to be judged by one of your children. He foretold things that were going to come. One of the things we want to be careful to do in reading God's Word is we want to take heed to things He warns us about, He tells us about, He proclaims to us. And for us, primarily in the days and the times we live, that's really about Christ's return, His appearing. There's a number of terms that are used. We won't get into some of the the details related to this, but in the Scriptures that talk about Jesus appearing, the rapture of the church, the second coming, uh, we'll, we'll wind down on some of those scriptures. Uh, that is part of God's key proclamation to us today that's supposed to inform the way we live. And if it doesn't, we're missing out on something important. We want to have our minds wrapped around the things God has told us are coming, the proclamations he has made that he means for us to take to heart. There's a great passage in Amos 3, one of the minor prophets, where Amos says, the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. God was going to do something. He'd tell the prophets. They would tell the people. They would warn them. They would make that proclamation. He expected them to take account of that, to sort of set their clocks or their personal agendas by those things he said were coming up. And we want to make sure we're doing the same thing. We're in week three of that series called Awaiting the King as we're thinking about Christmas and the Incarnation initially. And we're going through those Old Testament books that occurred around the time of the Judges. You remember terrible days, dark days. Uh, We've already been through the end of the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We've been in the book of Ruth. We're going to be in 1 Samuel this morning, at least to start. And you remember, everything in these these stories was, was about that God was proclaiming. He was telling people ahead of time, my king is coming. You remember, that's the way Judges winds down. There's no king in Israel. They're doing what's right in their own eyes. And then you get to the little book of Ruth, you remember, and it's key. Who do we know is coming? Because he, they give us his genealogy. So there, there is little Ruth, and she finally gets a baby boy, and that's Obed, and Obed has Jesse. And why do we care about Obed and Jesse? We don't care about them, do we? But we care about their son or their grandson, King David. Everything's about David coming, and God was proclaiming in that time to those folks, my king, my choice for king is coming. And that's what he's done for us again today. So we're going to see that in Samuel, as we take up this same theme, in Samuel now, as the book opens, the gears switch a little bit. 
Because although we're still looking for King David to arrive on the scene, you get to this key character in the procession up to him. You get to this character called Samuel. And we learn that Samuel has this very key role. He is going to proclaim God's kings have arrived. And remember, we'll get to this in the story, but Samuel's going to anoint the first two kings of Israel, Saul and then David. David's the key guy. We'll actually look at King Saul in a couple of weeks. But Samuel is this key figure who gets the nation ready for their king. That's his role. He proclaims the king's coming. And we'll see there's a trade-off on that in the New Testament when we see John the Baptist. He does the same thing. Now, guys, I'm going to tell you something this morning. Um, I love literature, if you haven't known that, poetry, literature of all sorts. I sort of wish I had a literature degree. I don't, but I've loved literature all my life. So I get caught up in Scripture as literature. And Scripture's literature may have absolutely no value in your mind. And that's okay. What I want us to see in part is this, though. We're going to walk through the life of Samuel a little bit. We're going to walk through the life of John the Baptist a little bit. We're going to look at key points. And what we're going to see is God has tightly wound together the stories of individuals and lives and places and times. And then that's been reflected in his word, and that's all for our benefit. There's no mistake in that. God means us to take uh, stock of that and to say, if it was important enough for God to weave these lives together, as you'll see, point by point, and then to record that in his word, then it's important enough for me to cue in on and to take notice of and say, why is that important? And at least in some significant way, you remember, all of Scripture ends up being about Christ. So if I'm, as I'm seeing the sacrifices and the people and the kings, and as we'll see today, Samuel and John the Baptist, if I read these stories and I don't see Christ, I'm not reading Scripture right. You know, even when you read Leviticus and people you know, who start to read through the Bible in a year and they've never read the Bible and they get through Genesis and Exodus, maybe even all the stuff about the the tabernacle, but once they get to Leviticus, what do they do? They they typically fall out, right? It's all sacrifices, and it's how do you do one thing and another, but what's Leviticus really all about? It's really all about Christ, because Christ is the fulfillment of all those sacrifices. So we want to make sure that in all these stories and the minutia that God brings into account, that we know that all of that stuff was to get us ready to see Christ. That's, that's where everything goes. So you can either read from the overhead or you can read in your Bibles. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. So we're going to read a little bit, get our heads a little bit around Samuel and why he was important related to King David. So the text there starts this way. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, or Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. Say that five times fast. He had two wives, and let me, let me proactively just mention here, the Jews reading this story, did it wig them out to hear that Elkanah had two wives? It really didn't, right? If you were a Jew, you came from one of four wives of Jacob, Right? The 12 tribes, they came from four different women. This is not saying marriage to more than one woman at a time is God's ideal. But I just want to head off. God is not stigmatizing Elkanah as an ungodly man because he had a second wife. You remember in those days, 
How many wives did Abraham have, the father of faith? He had two also. In those days, Elkanah would have married Hannah first. Now, we'll know from the story, she can't have kids. So in that time, you had to have a descendant to carry on your name. We, we saw this in the story of Ruth. You remember Abimelech needed, Elimelech? Elimelech needed somebody to carry on his name and Malon's name. And that's sort of behind the whole thing with Ruth and her marriage to Boaz. So he had to have a descendant, someone to carry on his name in the land. And that's behind him having that second wife. So that this is mentioned not to talk him down because we'll see he's actually a godly guy. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. That'd be his first wife. And the name of the other was Panina. Panina had children. Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. So the few facts we know about Elkanah is he's a worshiper of Yahweh. And remember, at this time, filled with idolatry, people doing just what they wanted, this was unusual. This guy worships Yahweh, intentionally goes up every year to devote himself and his family to God. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Benina, his wife, and to her sons and daughters, so that's part of the deal, but to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. And listen to this. Though the Lord had closed her womb. Why didn't she have children? Because God didn't let her. Her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. Now, this is at a feast, right? This is a happy time. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Now, he knows why. Am I not more to you than ten sons? It's like, honey, I love you. If I do anything for you, I could. I'm better than sons could be to you. After they'd eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, so they're there at the tabernacle. There's Eli. Text says that she's deeply distressed and she prays to the Lord and she's weeping bitterly. This thing is just getting her down. And she vowed a vow. And this is important. You remember in the law, the law said, don't make a vow thoughtlessly. Proverbs tells, says, if you make a vow to the Lord, you keep it. She is really serious about what she's saying here and what she's praying for. She vowed a vow and said, Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant, affliction of being barren, of not being able to have a child, and especially a son, an heir. If you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son. If you'll do that, this is the vow, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life no razor shall touch his head. Now, that means he'll be a Nazarite, right? That's They didn't cut their hair. You remember Samson's story. That was part of the deal. So he'll be yours from birth on. Now, I'm not reading the whole text here, but Eli sees this woman and thinks she's drunk. Now, remember, she's just there. Maybe she's kneeling or sitting. Her lips are moving. Now, what does it say about the times they live in that he thinks she's drunk at the tabernacle? Can you imagine if you came into the lion lamb and saw someone and you say, ah, they've been at the bottle again. That's just normal. That was the condition of the times they lived in. 
She says, hey, no, 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 that's not the deal. I'm pouring my heart out to the Lord. I'm, tell- I'm afflicted in my soul. This is my prayer. Man, Eli's thrilled. So he blesses her in Yahweh's name, asking God to answer her prayer. He doesn't even know what it is. Well, it says, they rose, skipping down to verse 19, they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her, hadn't forgotten her right, but was now answering her prayer. In due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Samuel, for she said, I have, asked him, I have asked for him from the Lord. And that's what his name means, asked. So real briefly, the story then of Samuel becomes, she has the little boy, she gives him the name Samuel, and then he's only with them for a short time because her promise was, as soon as I can, I give him back. And so basically that mean, means as soon as he's weaned from her. So he might have been three, might have been four, it's hard to say, he would have been a little older than most kids are weaned in the cultures today. But he's a little fella. Hannah takes him back to Eli in the tabernacle and says, I'm making good on my vow. This is what I prayed for. This little fella, Eli, here he is. I'm giving him to you. And he's going to be raised there at the tabernacle with Eli in God's presence. I'm skipping ahead through some of the narrative you know. Uh, Basically, God starts speaking to this guy when he's a little guy. And Eli knows because he confirms something that Eli had already been told. But basically, as he's growing up, Israel knows God speaks to this guy named Samuel. And God tells him things. And we know that Samuel is not just a priest, but he's a prophet. And in fact, we know he'll become the last judge in Israel's history. He's the last of that line. Now, it's his role, and I'm not going into all these details, but it's his role. He's the one that finds Saul, or Saul finds, as it were, when Saul is out chasing some lost donkeys. And God has told Samuel, you're going to anoint this guy as king. Now, Saul is not the king that God intends for the nation, but he looks like the king they want. And if you remember the story, Samuel warns them, when you get a king, this is what he's going to do. You're not going to like a lot of the things he does. There's going to be a high cost for you to get a king. They say, that's okay, that's what we want. So Saul is this tall, strong, handsome guy that Samuel anoints as their first king. And in that, God gives Israel the king they want. He gives them the king they want. But it's in David later that God gives them the king they need. So that's the distinction. We'll look at Saul next time. But it's Samuel who announces to the nation, This is your king. He anoints both Saul and David. He's the one that proclaims, I'm the last in the line of the judges. The next guys coming up are the kings. So that's 1 Samuel. Now we're going to go way back to the last of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi. You can turn there if you want. Malachi, last book of the Old Testament in our English Bible. If you're reading a Bible in the Jewish lineup, 2 Chronicles would be the last book in their Bible And that's important when you read in the Gospels that all the deaths from Abel to Zechariah are brought to bear on the Jews at that time because Zechariah, that's the last martyr in the Jewish Jewish Bible. Old Testament for us, but Jewish Bible. So Malachi is that last book for us. And what you find in Malachi is that God not only says the king is coming, the one that David prefigured, David's not the ultimate king, 
He was God's promise of a king in that time and day. But David's descendant, the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, he's going to come. So Malachi tells us that. But it also tells us that just like King David had Samuel to announce his coming, the Messiah is going to have someone who will come before him who will proclaim, he's coming, get ready. So Malachi tells us that both are coming. So just as Ruth ends on the note of the future birth of Israel's king, Malachi ends on that same note, the coming of a king, plus telling there's going to be an announcer. Like Samuel, there's going to be someone who comes before the king to proclaim his coming. If you want, we'll be in a couple passages in Malachi, Malachi 3 and Malachi 4, if you want to turn there. So in Malachi 3, and Malachi written, let's just say 400 years before Jesus' birth, it's written in the same time period as Haggai and Zechariah, um, maybe parts of Nehemiah. But it's the last written word we have from God before the New Testament. And the sins or the challenges the nation facing are a lot different than the times of the judges, but they've come back from Babylonian captivity, but their hearts have turned cold to God again. They, they've built the temple, but their hearts aren't really in it. They're not really subject to idolatry the way they used to be. But, but they're offering God lousy sacrifices. Their culture is filled with divorce. That sounds a lot like today, doesn't it? Uh, and they're missing out. And so God says a couple things to them. In Malachi 3, he says this. Now, this is God speaking. He says, Behold, I send my messenger. He'll prepare the way before me. So God says the messenger's preparing the way for me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant, so there's a messenger, messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. So a messenger's going to come, and after he proclaims the coming of the king, the king's going to suddenly arrive in his temple. And if you remember on Palm Sunday, Jesus had forbidden people to try and make him king throughout his ministry. You see that again and again. But you get to Palm Sunday, and what does Jesus do? He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, and where does he go? He goes right up to the temple, exactly as Malachi said he would. And you remember, just like Solomon got on King David's donkey and rode through Jerusalem, that's the way the king was presented. Jesus presented himself as a king on Palm Sunday, and he arrived in the temple just as Malachi said he would. Well, you get to Matthew 11, verse 7, and this skips ahead a little bit, but it follows Malachi's lead. When John the Baptist is imprisoned, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. And he asks them, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Among other things, he says, did you go out to John to see a prophet? And he says, yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written. John is this person. And he quotes Malachi 3. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. That means Jesus is claiming based on John, based on Malachi, I am God who's arrived at his temple. And John the Baptist has announced my coming. If you go to Malachi 4 verse 5, God continues, Behold, I will send you. Now he doesn't say his messenger, but he says Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He'll turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter 
destruction. So before the Messiah comes, and in chapter 4 it's that lovely phrase about the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, and that's tied to this messenger and this one who comes like Elijah. Well, when you get to Luke 1, do you remember the story of old Zechariah the priest in the holy place in the temple, and he's making the offering there of incense, and the angel Gabriel shows up, and he's frightened, and he doesn't know what to do, and Gabriel says, hey, don't freak out, don't be afraid. He says, God has heard your prayers. Zechariah's an old man. You remember, and his wife Elizabeth, she's old too. They're too old to have kids. They had prayed for kids for some time. They'd given up. But Gabriel shows up, and he says, God's heard your prayer, you're going to have a son. You'll call him John. And it says, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. This is Malachi 4. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Your son, you're going to call him John, he will come. He's not the same person as Elijah but he's in the spirit and power of Elijah, and he is going to prepare the people for their Messiah, for God's choice for them as a king. If you look at Matthew 17, we're doing okay, guys? Eyes are open, reading the script or listening? Okay. Matthew 17.10, the disciples have been up with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they had seen Elijah and Moses. And they'd had a conversation with Jesus about In the Greek, it says his exodus, his death, and his resurrection. And you remember as they came down, Jesus said, don't tell anyone about this until after my resurrection. Now, they've just seen Elijah, and they're confused. And they say, well, hold on. We understood that Elijah, and this is what the scribes teach, will come before the Messiah. So we just saw Elijah, and he went back up to heaven. We know you're the Messiah. What's the deal? What gives? We're confused. Jesus says, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things, but I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And he basically says, John the Baptist was Elijah. He was the one. He was rejected, and I'll be rejected. So Elijah did come. And last, let me give you this. This is from hundreds of years before Malachi, but I think it's an important one related to John and his role. Uh, Isaiah 40 is one of the best-known passages in all the Old Testament. In part, it reads, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. There's a voice crying in the wilderness, Get ready for your God. And when you turn to John's Gospel, you see that same theme brought up. When the uh, temple priests send to John the Baptist to say, who do you claim to be? You're out here in the wilderness, you're preaching like a prophet, you're baptizing people. Who are you? And in fact, they ask him, are you the Messiah? Or are you Elijah? They ask him specifically too. He says, I'm not the Messiah and I'm not Elijah. Now, I don't think he's trying to give them a, a dodge. He is not the person of Elijah. He's not the same person But we already know from Luke 1, he's the one that came in the spirit and power of Elijah. But he said, he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. 
Now, Isaiah is predicting the coming of Yahweh just as Malachi was. All of these are claims that Jesus, before Jesus has said anything, these are claims that Jesus is God in the flesh, all of these announcements. The messengers are proclaiming God with them. So the messengers being faithful to their call, and they're proclaiming that God has arrived in the person of Jesus. If you look at John 1.29, which, by the way, is one of the two verses that this church takes its name from, John sees Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he says, For this purpose I came baptizing. I came for this reason. I baptized for this reason that he might be revealed to Israel. I have one singular purpose. I'm proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God in the flesh. And then last, and we'll keep going here. In John 3, he said, I've been sent before him. He's going to increase. I'm decreasing. My role was not to save anyone. My role was to proclaim Christ, God's Messiah, and then decrease. Once I, as the messenger, have announced who it is that's coming after me, my role is done. So if you've got a study sheet, and I hope you do, look, look at this. Um, look at these points of correlation between Samuel and John. They are so many, and they are so minute, that we've got to think God was up to something. And again, for, for me, this goes back to the fact that God was always showing whatever the Scripture was, whatever the story, whoever was involved, God's always been about getting us ready for Jesus as God's King and as our Lord and Savior. It's always been about Christ. These stories aren't ends in themselves. Samuel and John, in both cases, they were meant to have a singular role to get the nation ready for their king. So Samuel is born to godly parents. That's what we're supposed to take away from seeing Elkanah as the worshiper there. And the text in Luke 1 says both Zechariah and Elizabeth are godly parents, are godly Jews. Samuel is a descendant of Levi and a priest, and this does not come out clearly in the story in Samuel. So if you just read the story and you say, how can Samuel be a priest? You have to go to 1 Chronicles 6, 33-38, where it gives his lineage. And then you realize he's a priest by his descent, physical descent. When it calls him an Ephraimite, he's not from Ephraim or Ephraim. That's where he lives. That's his address. John the Baptist is also a descendant of Levi and also a priest on both his mother and his father's side. Samuel and John were both born to barren women. Samuel and John were both answers to prayer, specifically for a son. Samuel and John are both dedicated to God before their birth as Nazarites. Sam's mother famously gives a song of praise after his birth in 1 Samuel 2. Now, it's, Mary has a prayer, right? A significant one that people are aware of, the Magnificat. But John's father, Zechariah, also gives a hymn of praise after John's birth in Luke 1, towards the end of the chapter there. And both of those songs have at least four common themes. Exaltation in the Lord. Uh, there's a horn of deliverance that's raised up for salvation. They're being delivered from their enemies, and God is guarding and guiding their feet. Both songs have those same themes. Samuel's the last judge of the Old Testament. John the Baptist is the last prophet of the Old Testament. Samuel anoints both Saul and David as king. John baptizes Jesus. Samuel foretells God's judgment in the end of Eli's house, and this was done doubly. In fact, it's how Eli knew God had really spoken to Samuel, because Samuel said the same thing another 
prophet had already told Eli about the end of his household. Uh, God was judging him. And also Samuel foretells from the grave God's judgment on Saul and his house. That's in 1 Samuel 28. Some people wonder, was that really Samuel that came up from the dead when Saul uses a, a, a witch to ask Samuel to come up? And the text says it's Samuel. I assume it's really Samuel. It's sort of the exception to the rule. God let him come up to tell Saul one last time, you're, you're toast, you and your sons will be with me. That is in the grave tomorrow. And then last, John foretells God's judgment on unrepentant both Jews and Gentiles in Matthew 3. We'll look at that passage a little later. Last there, Samuel came and announced Israel's kings. John came in the spirit of Elijah and announced Jesus' presence. Point by point correlation. Now related to Elijah, some think because of Matthew 17 that Elijah still has a future role to play. Jesus said Elijah does come and he will restore all things. Sounds like a future promise. It's really not clear, frankly. If you're looking for another appearance of Elijah, Revelation 11 and one of the two prophets that's in that chapter might be a good bet, but, but on all of that it's simply not clear enough to hang our hat on anything. At the end of the day, if we get hung up on does Elijah come again, we're probably missing the point, right? The only role Elijah, someone in the spirit and power of Elijah, was meant to have was to proclaim Christ. So we're not looking for Elijah. We're looking for Christ. We're looking for Jesus' return, not, not another prophet. John did introduce Jesus as God's King and Messiah, and that means the world has been put on notice. This is one of the reasons why we've got to listen to the Scriptures. If God tells us something and we ignore it, that's at our peril, that's at our loss. Who's going to stand before God and say, I didn't know? No one. The heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1, we have a revelation of God. It's not necessarily the gospel, but what do we tend to do? We turn away from that. We won't, no one will stand before God and say, I didn't know enough. Not at all. We've been forewarned. God has told us through John that Jesus is the Christ. Also, Paul says the same thing in Acts 17.30. It's this sense of notice. He's proclaimed. He's forewarned. He's told. He says there, the times of ignorance God overlooked. The Messiah hadn't come. There's a new level, a heightened level of responsibility. The Messiah has now come. Times of ignorance are over. Now God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Guys, you know, when we talk about proclaiming Christ, we're proclaiming the only one who claimed to and who did rise from the dead. Not true of Buddha, not true of Muhammad, not true of anyone else's religious head, only true of Christ. That was God's stamp. This guy is it. He didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. So the world's on notice, as are you and I. So, so, so what? You got the literary points. Uh, man, we get it. Now Samuel's a precursor to John. David's a precursor to Jesus. Okay, 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 what do we do with that? Uh, let me offer three things, and these are my three major takeaways. You might have some others. These, by the way, are on your study sheet. We should be, like John the Baptist, introducing Jesus to as many people as God allows or provides. Now, we're not John the Baptist, and I get that, and I'm good with that. 
And you might even say, I am not an evangelist by gift. And I'm, I'm good with that too. I have no problem with that. When I was an early uh, young Christian, I thought I was an evangelist. I thought God was telling me, Mike, you're an evangelist. And you know what? I am not an evangelist. I've worked hard at sharing the gospel with people. Uh, off the street, hitchhikers, you name it, it was all good. Kathy was very gracious to the people uh, that would come into our home. And I said, well, we're having these guys for lunch. Okay. The guy says, I, won't, I would take my hat off, but I haven't bathed in a week, and so I'm going to leave my hat on. We're like, we're good with that. But it was just to share the gospel. But guess what? I've seen very few people personally come to Christ through my witness. But I've worked at it because I think I'm responsible to do that. I think all of us are responsible to do that. That we have a role, just like John the Baptist, we are witnesses, right? Scripture calls all of us to be witnesses. In Matthew 28, where the church is commissioned to make Christ known to the nations in whatever sphere of influence that is for us, So we're called, like John, to have this role of announcing to others the person and the work of Christ. So if we go through life and we never have these gospel-centered conversations with others, guys, something's amiss. One of the things you can do, if you say, I feel like I don't get very many opportunities, which is fine, I get that. That's true for lots of us. Where we work or, or where we hang out or family... We may not be around enough folks who don't know Christ regularly that that's a regular thing. But I guarantee if you pray, Lord, would you help me rub shoulders, be in those places where I can share the hope I have in Christ with someone else, he will. You will have those opportunities. And one of the things we want to do, I don't want to say this woodenly. Most of us are uncomfortable sharing the gospel with the very concept. Most Christians are. So then we work our courage up and we're just looking to unload on someone so we can check that off our list. I did that, I'm good to go. We don't want to do that either. So we want to pray, Lord, you show me those opportunities and then we want to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Guys, sometimes the conversations you'll have with others who don't know Christ yet will be ones where you share the gospel with them or your own testimony, something very direct. Other times that won't be what you're sharing but you'll know nevertheless that I'm sharing what God wants me to. So even I know I'm not an evangelist, but when I'm in these conversations, I'm praying quietly, Lord, what do you want me to say? I generally try and listen first, where's the person at? But then I pray, Lord, what do you want me to say? I want to be sensitive. But we have a role, we're not John, but we're called to be witnesses. We should be looking and taking opportunities to make other people aware that God has put the, note, the world on notice that you stand or fall based on your relationship with Christ. Now, how do you guys like this image? I, got a real, I thought this was a pretty cheesy image of the rapture, so I figured if you were asleep, you'd wake up for this one. So you've got farmers, you've got people in cars, you've got people in graves, coming out of the grave, they're meeting Jesus in the air, and that's That's 1 Thessalonians 4, right? Jesus descends with a shout. He calls the dead in Christ rise first. We who remain and are alive will be gathered together with him in the air. That's what the text says, unapologetically. And then we'll be forever with the Lord. So I want to reiterate, we said this in week one, but it bears repeating. We are meant as Christians to have an outlook on life that is looking for Christ's appearing. And if we have not somehow set the clock of our life, our expectations, our thoughts, our plans to Christ's appearing, we're probably guilty of idolatry. 
We have probably made things on the earth more important than who has called us, who we're in relationship with, and who it is we're supposed to be waiting for. You know, there's a lovely image in Matthew 25 in which uh, the bridegroom is going to come and everybody's waiting for the bridegroom. The bride is waiting. And if you remember, there's a story about ten virgins who are waiting. I won't go into the story. But it's the thought of expectation. If you're engaged to be married, think of all of ourselves as a bride. If you're engaged to be married, your wedding's approaching, you're not sure when it's going to happen. You live every day like, I can't wait, I can't wait, I can't wait. It's sort of all I can think about. I've got to work at focusing on the things in front of me because of my expectation of that wedding day. And I'll be with my beloved, and he'll be with me, and that'll be life forever. If we don't have some sense of that expectation, guys, our heart is not where God means it to be. So you've got these on your study sheet. I won't read them in toto, but first. Peter 1.13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Titus 2, 2 Peter, there's a host of others. First uh, Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10 is one of my favorites. If we don't have a life that at some sense, just like John's birth, he knows at some point I'm going to announce and Messiah is going to arrive. John came, he announced Messiah has come. Jesus said, I'm going to come back. The early church was waiting for his return. We don't have some sense that our life is set. This expectancy about Jesus' return, it means we're focusing on minor things. We've made them bigger than God means them to be. And the last is this, and for some of you, this will be the biggest thing. Last week, we talked about that in God's eyes, there's no little people and there's no little places. Doesn't matter how small you are as, as the world measures stature. It doesn't matter what backwater of the world you occupy. None of that is relevant ultimately to God, a God who's all-powerful, who uses people and places and times as he sees fit. It's dependent on God, not us. But think about Hannah again for a minute. Why was she childless? Because God meant her to be childless. Do you think she'd prayed about having kids? She'd prayed a lot. That vow, that was sort of a new heightened level of that prayer, right? She prayed for a son, you know that. She prayed for years for a son. And God said no. Was it a godly desire for a son? Absolutely. It was, it was considered shameful in Israel if you didn't bear a son. She was embarrassed. She was ashamed. She prayed for a son. This is God's deal. Give me a son. And God said no for a long time. Does that seem harsh? I want something that everybody else gets and I don't get. It's a natural desire, God. You've put that desire for in me. I'm praying for your goodwill. And you say, no, what's with that? And then you find out, well, because God was holding off. Because he wanted her to have a very special son. And that's often what you find in the scripture. God doesn't give someone what they want, a legitimate desire, because there's something tied to his program, his plans by which he needs that person to be held off. This whole thing with the children of promise, they're almost always to women who couldn't have kids because God wanted to know, this is my work, not yours. It's my power bringing this about. It's not yours. So all this to say, how many of us here say at some point, I want to be married and I'm not. I want children and we can't have them. I would like this, this financial 
level of life that just means I, I can do a few things that I realize I can't. Or I would love just a, a level of social standing that it's not idolatrous, it would just be nice to be recognized by a few people, or whatever it might be. And if God's ultimately in control of all of our lives, and he is, if we've prayed and he's withheld, it's for a reason. So none of us can say, even based on what God's withheld, God doesn't have a, a place or a plan for me. Sometimes the very opposite is true. God has withheld something because he means to use that arena of life in his plans. So if we find ourselves in a place like Hannah or like Zechariah and Elizabeth, they had prayed for decades. They were so old they had given up praying. If we find ourselves at some arena in life, ask God to show us, Lord, how do you want to use that thing or the lack of that thing in my life for your plans, your purposes, your glory? None of this is wasted. And we throw pity parties for ourselves. We feel bad. We keep our heads down. We don't engage in others for what we lack when the thing we lack may be the very way God means to use us. So we've got to be careful. We don't focus on the lack. We focus on God. What do you want to do with that? There's a place on your study sheet for this, by the way. When Hannah finally prayed that vow, she said, Lord, if you'll give it to me, I will give it back. That thing I'm asking from you, it won't become an idol in my life. That boy you give me, I'll give him right back to you. And she did. And then what did God do for her in the rest of her story? Gave her five more children. See, it wasn't that God wouldn't bless. It said he, he couldn't or didn't want to bless her way in her time because something bigger was involved. So whatever it is that we feel is lacking in our life, we don't need to see that as something deficient. Ask God, what do you want to do in my life? How do you want to use that lack that I have, that, that way in life that's not what I wanted, not what I've prayed about? How do you want to be at work in that so I'm part of your plan and your program. Because at the end of the day, it's nothing about me, myself, and I, isn't it? Everybody's relationship is tied to Christ. That's what we want to nail this down to. We're looking for Christ. We're announcing to others the person and work of Christ. And we're seeing the lack in our own lives as avenues by which God ultimately wants to honor himself. It's about him, ultimately, not about us. Father, as a Christmas and the remembrance of Jesus' incarnation uh, comes upon us, would you help us to look outside our own uh, lives, our own sense of either blessing or lack? Would you help us to look for the opportunities and the people that we can share the hope we have in Christ with? Would you help us to give you, Lord, the points in our life that feel like painful absences, give them to you, and, and ask you simply whether it's an asset or a lack to use us to glorify yourself to focus our own lives and hopes on Christ and to point to others to him as well. In Jesus' name, amen.